around 90, 1990, 1991 is when I really started to get into the NBA. And 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 uh, the NBA on NBC theme song, uh, Round Ball Rock, John Tesh, really it is, that brings me back to that time. It, it, it's it's almost like, it's kind of like walking into into your parents' house and you, you, you get certain smells and you see certain things. And it just brings it brings you back to a certain period in your life. And round ball rock, as silly as that sounds, does, has has the same effect on me. Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today's interview is with Pete Corrado. Pete recently published his first novel, From Hang Time to Prime Time which chronicles the rise of the NBA as a global brand. If you're a fan of sports and a fan of great writing, this is the book for you. In this interview, we talk how Pete found an agent, wrote a proposal, got a publishing deal, and then we talk the book and the mechanics behind the writing of the book, touching on everything from Robert Caro to how one little detail can make the whole scene. If you like sports and sports writing, this is the episode for you. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do me a favor and sign up for my free weekly email newsletter at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Takes five seconds, totally free of charge, of course, and you get a weekly email from me each Thursday with a link to that week's podcast episode, plus updates on writing, coaching, and my new book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, which drops November 1st exclusively on Amazon in both print and ebook editions. Again, that's benbo.substack.com. Takes five seconds to sign up with your email. Enjoy. What, what was the, that process like of, um, I guess, getting an agent, getting a publisher, getting a contract, etc.? It's a It was a long process. You know, I, I think there's a tendency um, to think that, oh, yeah, it's that you, but, but, but when you, it's a lot like falling in love, I think, you know, you fall in love some someone's instantaneous, but there's years of hurt and rejection and fumbling to get to that point. So with the, with the book, it's, you know, when I tell people about, about, getting the book it seems very like instantaneous but it really wasn't so I wrote a piece for Grantland in 2013 about uh, Marvin Gaye's national anthem at the 83 NBA all-star game what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last and with with that piece there were a lot of things about the NBA at that time in 1983, about you know about the significance of that ant that I really couldn't get into the into I really couldn't get into the piece. I think I had 2,500 words. You know, I interviewed 25 people. There were a ton of things I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get in there. So, you know, afterwards I thought, you know what? There's a book here. There's a book about how the NBA got to this point and what happened afterwards about how the NBA went from being this sort of, you know, rinky-dink league to this sort of, you know, to being the, the world's cool sport, you know, being a, 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 a business and cultural conglomerate. So I talked to a few people about it and they said, yeah, you know, that, that sounds like a really good idea for a book. And one of them, my friends who mentioned that was a gentleman by the name of Mark Rotella, who was my editor of Publishers Weekly. 
And Mark, to his everlasting, to my everlasting gratitude, said, look, you know, I will, let me work on a proposal. I will read, I'll read it, for, I'll read it, review it, and I'll send it to my agent. So I spent about, I'd say a year or so working on a proposal for this book, kind of tweaking it. And then I sent it over to Mark's agent. Hi, it's Ben interrupting here. So the agent never gets back to Pete. He sits on this proposal for a year and then joins an organization. The American Society of Journalists and Authors, known as ASJA. So in 2017, they, the ASJA had a conference, um, had their conference in New York City. And part of the conference was that you could talk to agents. You could talk to agents either one-on-one or in roundtables. You could bring your book idea, pitch them. And I thought, great, that's perfect for me. I will do that and we will be, I'll be off and running. So that's, so what I did was I, I prepared a two minute spiel to, for, uh, for, for an agent about my book, about what it was about, what the marketplace was for it. I also had a, uh, like a one page sheet with, you know, sort of a, uh, with my elevator pitch and a business card. And, you know, I hit up as many agents as I could, you know, I went to, you know, I had, I think I had three or four one-on-one meetings with agents and, you know, I did that. And then the next, the last day were round tables and I was on the fence about doing it. I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go, I don't know. I've, I've, I've done, you know, I've, I've met with four or five agents maybe I'll go to this, uh, you know, instead of one of these round tables, maybe I'll go to this seminar with, with magazine editors. And my, my sister-in-law Darcy said, you know what, like, you know, you, you, you know, a lot of editors, like go to the, go to the round tables. Like what's the worst that could happen. So I went to a few round tables and, um, you know, lo and behold, at one of them, I met uh, a gentleman named John Bowers, who was at the Ben agency. And, you know, I, 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 gave him my pitch and he seemed exceedingly interested in the idea. He was, he was engaged. And then a few weeks later, he said, look, you know, I'm, I'm interested in representing you. I want, I like this idea. And things got a little shaky about a month later when John left the agency, but thankfully um, Louise Fury, uh, who's my agent now uh, was interested in the book. And then in December, no, January of 2018, the proposal got sold to, uh, to Atria Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. We're looking at five years between idea to, to, to book deal. I think it was Ernest Hemingway who said about going bankrupt, that it happens slowly and then all at once. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. It, it feels like once it happens, it was like, it, it just, it felt like it, it was just amazing and it was incredible. But you look back, it's like, Jesus Christ, that took forever. For writers and, mm-hmm. and potential writers out there, what did your proposal look like? My proposal was very simple. It had summaries of all the chapters. So I think at that time, I think I had 10 or 11 chapters. It broke the, the chapters down, what they were about, how, how I would write them. It also featured, I think, comparable titles, which was what what this book what uh, what book what this book could be sold against. So, like, here's what it's like. Here's what this book is similar to. That way, uh, that way, a publisher would look at it and be like, "Oh yeah, okay, I know. I, these are books that I know. This is this book is in the, is in this vein. Okay, we can we can do something here." And, and what uh, were some of the comps that you you let's proposed? see. 
I think I shot for the stars here. Um, I think Jeff Perlman's book on the Lakers was on that list. His uh, Showtime mm -hmm. book, book. Showtime. One of my, I love that book. Jonathan Abrams, um, Boys Among Men. Um, Fantastic which, book. Which is a great that, that book. That book has not gotten enough um, that, publicity. That is it hasn't a book, gotten its due. I don't understand why that book isn't, isn't, isn't talked about more. Because I think so it's, it's, it's an amazing, it's a great book. That was on that list. And there was also, um, I think, a, a biography of, of me and what, what my background was. But it was a it was a it was a lengthy document. I think we're looking at about fifty pages um, of when you put everything together. As you um, said, it took you a year to put it together, right? It took me a year. Now Pete and I transition into talking about marketing the book and promoting your book. The, the dirty little secret that you're not told, that authors aren't told, is that you're doing a lot of the work when the book comes out. I mean, a lot, a lot of the publicity outreach has been through my, on my end. I mean, I've had to choose like you, excerpts. You reached out to me for this. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, and, and and look, that's fine. That's how the game is played. But it is amazing how much work is involved after the book comes out. Like, I, I, I don't, th I don't think any author worth their salt can just write a book and then just sit back and be like, well, I'm done, that's it. Like, I'm just gonna let, everything's gonna come to me. Like, no, you an author constantly has to be in the marketing and customer service business. So by marketing, I mean, you, you know, I'm reaching out to podcasts and reaching out to, pub to various publications and wherever to see if someone wants to talk to me about this book that has now been out for, a lot of months, you know, I do not, I do not mind spending an hour reaching out to people and trying to get my name out there and trying to get people interested in my book because I have had so many shitty jobs in my life that this is a Swedish massage compared to editing, you know, trade magazines or working for a bookstore where we were on, we we're teetering on bankruptcy, you know, um, uh, at the end of every week. So yeah, this is so yeah, to me, like if you if you want to do something that you love to do, there's still work involved. What what are sort of best practices? What are the things that you do? What are the things you advise other authors to do in terms of promoting their their work? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I, I did immediately that I thought was that I thought was usually beneficial was I partnered with a local bookstore, with a local independent bookstore. So I a couple of months before the book came out, I called um, I called Odyssey Bookstore uh, in Ithaca, which is a great used bookstore in downtown Ithaca, which is near where I live. And I offered, you know, I kind of said, look, you know, I'd love to do stuff for you, uh, maybe do a Zoom, a Zoom chat about the book, um, you know, maybe, you know, sell autographed copies. And they were totally on board, um, you know, so I will always thank um, Annie Clymer, who's the manager there. Uh, for just being completely open to the idea of me working with them. So that was hugely helpful, was to partner with, excuse me, partner with a local independent bookstore, like have that as my base. Um, and, the, and, and continuing from that, I think it is crucial to not overlook local media. It, you know, I, I think, look, we all want to be in the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and Newsweek and Time and blah. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I would also like to, you know, slam dunk a basketball. But 
there, but you know, but there, but there is, but you have, but you cannot overlook the fact that there are local outlets that are that need news, that need that need promotional stuff. They need things, and I think that's and I think that's the thing that I think authors need to look at is your book is an event. It's news. If you're a local author, you're doing something that not many people do. That's something that 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 local news or outlets are going to want to hear about. So I reached out to pretty much every local outlet here in town. So I got I got covered on Spectrum News in 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 uh, Central New York, and out of the couple of the weekly newspapers covered me. I had a couple of daily newspapers uh, interview me for, about the book. So yeah, I tried to go local and cover and cover those bases because I could control that. And because and, and it's, let's, yeah. let's, Let's dive in there. So when, mm -hmm. when you reach out to Spectrum News, what does that look like? Man, that is, that's a good question because it took like 35 emails to get a response. And people think, oh, it's only, it's only local news. Well, yeah, everyone wants to be covered by local news. There are charitable organizations, there are politicians. It's everybody. So you have to be tenacious about it. So yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think I, I found an email address through um through the through, you know again through the uh through the uh news website there and I, I it was just every week just like emailing and emailing and then i called them and i called the sports department and i mailed a book to the sports director there never got a word on whether he received it that's okay but it's 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 that kind of you have to be relentless about it and you know i was you know and it was just it was third i mean it was literally been like i'd say 30 emails of just Hey, you know, the NBA season's coming up. Might want to check out my book. Hey, I've been covered in the Boston Globe. Might want to check out my book. It got to the point where I was even annoyed to write to these people. Like, I'm not receiving these emails, but I'm the one. I'm like, Jesus Christ, if I was, this, if I was on the receiving end of this, I tell this guy to fuck off. But I just kept at it and at it and at it. And then I think in March, I got an email like, hey, hey, you want to, you want to talk to us for this, for this? You want to, you want to be on the, you want to, we're interested in this, and it was as if they, and it was as if they hadn't gotten the email. But I, but it's funny. In my attempt to get, to get coverage, I actually reached out to an anchor, uh, to a new, uh, an anchor person, with Spectrum News through D, through Twitter DM, and I was hoping like that would be my in. Like if I have a person, I can just like slip in. And she told me, she told me, I think straight up, like we, like we get about six hundred emails a day into the general email box at Spectrum News. Like, and you think like, oh, that's Spectrum News, but like, it's, that's a lot of email. So you have to be, you have to be on it. And I, and I really, to me, like, I don't care. Like if someone tells me like, no, or like when I, I don't, I don't care. I just, to me, like, to me, I'm very proud of this book. It took me a long time to get here. I may, I may not be here again, or I may not be here again very you know for a long time so i want to just i need it's in my best interest to reach out and to provide a, to provide a service like i have a story that's interesting you have you're looking for stories right we can work together and the flip side is now because of the the long tail of the internet there's also it's also relatively easy to get in touch with people like for yes. example, you got in touch with me mm -hmm. and I was wondering, I was like, how did he hear about me? And then when I was reading your book, you opened one of the chapters with um, Dave Zyron. And I was like, oh, I bet he, I bet he um, saw the interview I did with Dave. It's that. And, yeah. and so 
and and that process was super easy. And what you did that's so great is you said, um, you know, I just wrote this book. And then it was like, here's a link to the book and I can send you a hard copy. And then here's, yeah. you know, a four page, whatever. Mm -hmm. So now that we're in, again, in, in that promotion, now that you're in that promotion process, yeah. mm -hmm. what, like, what's the hit rate for those emails um, for you? Oh man, that's a great question. And it's, it's going to be low. Like, I mean, I, right. I'll, 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 I'm trying to think me, if I'm lucky 30%, it's like, it's like a batting average. You know, if you hit 300, you're doing, you're doing great. If I get three out of every 10 people to be like, yeah, well, I'm interested or we'll do that. I, I, that, that to me is a great rate of return. And I think that's the, you have to go in. I, I think if you're, if you're a writer and you're promoting a book, you have to go with that low level of, of expectation. Like, you know what, if I, you can't expect everyone to get back to you. Let's yes. dive into your book. Okay. Time to prime time. Um, yes. This is a fantastic read and I can't Thank recommend you. it strongly enough. And for the folks out there, please get it from your local independent bookstore. The book is basically the NBA from 1977 to 1989. Mm -hmm. 1977, it's, it's a provincial, almost backwater mm -hmm. sports league. Yeah. And by 1989, it's on the cusp of the global mm -hmm. superpower that we know it is today. Mm -hmm. And the, sort of the two key figures are the, are the two commissioners of that time, uh, Larry O'Brien and David Stern. And reading your book, and, and the book starts with Larry O'Brien um, taking, taking over as commissioner and the mm -hmm. ABA, NBA merger. And I sort of had this sense of it's almost like Steve Jobs to Tim Cook, right? Larry O'Brien to David mm -hmm. Stern in terms of these two fantastic um, commissioners or in the case of Jobs and Cook, CEOs of Apple, uh, totally different people, but they were, um, you sort of get two superstars back to back. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, you know, let's not ignore that it's, as you point out in the book, it's Julius Irving to Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, you've got these four um, superstars uh, mm -hmm. that, that are, Larry Bird accepted, you know, perfectly happy to do press and so forth. Sure. Um, yeah, so that, that was sort of my initial take is it's sort of, you know, it's these two key figures back to back. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, you know, and again, those, you know, the players you mentioned are, are, are of course, exceedingly important. And I think that's, that's one thing that, you know, I think you know, I, I should stress repeatedly is that, yeah, you, you the players, you, know, you need the players. But I think what, what's so important is that with the NBA success, so much of it, was based on people that you didn't, you never really got to see or, or talk about or, or really don't really know about. You know, that's the thing. I think, and that's one thing I wanted to do with this book is I wanted to show, okay, you know what? Yeah, we know about Magic and Larry and Dr. J and blah, blah, blah. But to me, the NBA success is really based on a lot of things, oh, from the success of the NBA is based on a lot of people that you may not even heard of or not, or not, or don't know much about. And Larry O'Brien to me is such a pivotal figure because with him, when he's hired in 75, the NBA gets a boost of credibility because it wasn't like now when you hire NBA commissioners that, you know, or a commissioner in any sports league, that job is the pinnacle in their career. Like, you know, with Dave, you know, David Stern, Bud Seeley, like that's the pinnacle. Like that is, that is the tops, top job you can get. With Larry O'Brien, with Larry O'Brien, pardon me, it really was almost a step down for him because this is somebody who was part of JFK's, you know, Irish Mafia. He was, in, he was, he was postmaster general under L. Lawrence, uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, he was somebody who was just, you know, a major figure in democratic politics. And to go to the NBA was like, 
you know, he had he, he had to be like kind of forced into it. He had to be like begged, and he was he was cajoled into taking that job. And with him taking with him taking the commission position, it may have been a step down for Lyle O'Brien, but it was it meant the world of the NBA because it 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 gave them it gave them legitimacy, it gave them relevance. Right. Because here's somebody who is a a big name in in national politics taking over the NBA. I mean, and it, it, it's kind of like now if the best way, the best comparison would be like if someone like, let's say, let's see, um, Elizabeth Warren, like took over the National Lacrosse League. It'd be like, wow, Elizabeth Warren, she's, she's, whoa, okay, well, now this is a right. big deal. It was almost right. on par with that. So Larry O'Brien coming in, again, gave the NBA legitimacy. It also was somebody who, who, who also knew how to negotiate who knew how to kind of keep things in order, which the NBA desperately needed. I mean, their meetings would go into chaos. And Larry O'Brien was sort of this no-nonsense, res- respected figure who was like, all right, this is what we have to do. Let's do this. Let's get it done. So that was the first big thing. And the second thing, the big thing with Larry O'Brien was that he gave David, I'm sorry, he, he hired David Stern full-time. So by hiring David Stern full-time, he that allowed Larry O'Brien that gave him the perfect protege. That gave him the perfect consigliere to do all the dirty work and handle all the stuff that Larry O'Brien maybe didn't have time or energy to do. Like the, the best thing about writing this book was to find out, you know, what the dynamic was, what the differences were between Larry O'Brien and David, David Stern. Larry O'Brien, he, he was a basketball fan and he was somebody who, you know, cared about the league and he was there every day, but he was somebody who, he went into the office in the morning, went to his office, and that was it. You didn't really see him. You had to go see him. There was there was a disconnect. Excuse me. With David Stern, he was in the nitty-gritty. He mixed it up. So he got to know the owners. He got to know the GMs. He got to work with Larry, Larry Fleischer and the Players Association. He, he, mixed, he was able to mix it up. So by the time Larry O'Brien steps aside, in 1983, when he announced his retirement, and David and David Stern, David Stern takes over in 84. David Stern has like a five-year head start. He's already gotten the lay of the land, so he's not like overwhelmed. He doesn't have to know. He, has, he doesn't have to know the major players. He doesn't have to like learn how things work. He knows it all. So really, it was just it was a perfect transition, and I and for and for. And I don't, and I, I think Larry O'Brien doesn't get nearly enough credit for his role in the NBA's growth because he gives the NBA, because not only does he set the NBA on its course by being this presence that people know and, and turns the NBA into this sort of respected league, but he has the foresight to hire David Stern full time and to put him in a position where he can make a difference. And that decision was something that not a lot of people agreed with. There is, you know, Simon Gordine was the next in line, he was the deputy commissioner, but Larry O'Brien knew, like, yeah, this is. David Stern's the guy that's going to get the job done. And he was right. He was absolutely right about that. Right, right. And, and so that's kind of where I see that um, Steve Jobs, Tim Cook dynamic. Yeah. And mm-hmm. This is the guy. I, I, you know, in addition to everything else I'm doing, I understand who the next guy should be. Exactly. Well, one of the quotes you have um, that's attributed to Larry O'Brien is early on, he says, the owners are the biggest bunch of assholes. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think part of, 
what he did was sort of get the owners in line. And of course, he's coming from a, a political background of, mm-hmm. of the highest order. Yep. And he was a master at shepherding legislation. Yep. And, and in fact, you know, Lyndon Johnson, who was the absolute master at getting yep. legislation passed, you know, relied yep. on Larry mm-hmm. O'Brien to get much of his stuff done. So, uh, you know, can you talk about that dynamic of how to sort of herd cats how to deal with this group of just provincial assholes and how to sort of, you know, get shit done. Well, you know, I think with, with, with Larry O'Brien, it was, what was so important about him being, being in the room was that he wasn't part of the NBA family. If you look at the previous commissioners, there was Jay Walter Kennedy who had been there for, I think 15 years before then. I think he, he had handled PR for the NBA with, with Mars Podoloff. Who was the first the first president uh, yeah first commissioner for lack of a better term they were all nba guys like they grew up in the nba they were it was part of liar brown was a complete outsider he had no i mean he he went to knicks games he was a, he was a celtics fan but having him go in there just sort of being like clear-eyed a clear-eyed beacon was like that was a big change because like all right you know guys like let's cut the bullshit like let's just do this let's just do that let's get it done but i think with Lyle O'Brien. What, what, what's, what's, what's great about Larry O'Brien is that he was somebody who, who knew how to delegate. And he did that with, with, with the J, with, 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 when his time as JFK and with, and with, with LBJ. He, he knew how to, how to he, had, he had, Ira Kappenstein was sort of his, his, his consigliere when he was with, I think, LBJ. Uh, Ira Kappenstein died young, I think 36, 37. He was a, a young man. But that's who Larry O'Brien, when he was in politics, leaned on to kind of like clear the lanes and get things done. And he did the same thing with David Stern. So Larry O'Brien was someone who could just sort of sit back and, you know, do his thing. But he had that bulldog with David, with David Stern to kind of go in there and, and clear the lanes and get things done. So Larry O'Brien, yeah, he, he, it, and I talked to a lot of people about Larry O'Brien. I tried to get a, a, a sense of like, what did Larry do? Like, what was he, was he like a woofer and shaker? Was he like, was he like playing like dirty pool? Not really. Larry O'Brien. Larry O'Brien's biggest asset was that was that was it was in delegation. And I think in, in identifying like, look, to get this organization run the right way, or the league run the right way, we have to treat it like a business. We have to treat it like a political or- organization. So like, I'm going to be here and sort of be the sober leader, but David Stern is going to be the person who's going to do the legwork that I really don't have the time or the energy to do. And with David Stern, it was a perfect fit because not only was David Stern a diehard basketball fan, a diehard NBA fan, but he was somebody who looked at the NBA, saw potential in what it could be, but also had the business savvy to get to, to, to accomplish that. Like he was not somebody who was a, a glad handler who was going to be like, oh, you know, back in the good old days. Like, no, David Stern was forward thinking and was somebody who was was a striver and a doer and i think larry o'brien knew that i think larry o'brien identified who could be his avatar you know right larry o'brien at the time look i mean in 1975 larry o'brien had been in democratic politics since he was like a teenager he was i mean he you know he didn't want to go i don't think he wanted to go in there and be you know, and, and kind of like and spend a lot of energy. I think he wanted yeah. to be, he wanted a role that could, he want, he was, you know, he, he was, reti- he was retired. He didn't really have a lot of things happening. The NBA wanted, wanted him. It was a perfect fit. He, it was a chance for him to be 
to be of use and to do something that was going to keep him busy about and also be about and it was also going to be about a passion of his it was it was going to be something different so that was the challenge there but david stern had enough energy and youth to spare so larry o'brien could sort of just could really so delegation was really larry o'brien's gift to the nba through david stern and you know again it's it's amazing to me now just to look to just to see like we talk about sliding doors if david's if if larry o'brien says you know what let's keep let's keep david stern at proskauer as like as the legal as the outside legal counsel he's good let's have cy gordine come in and be the and be the deputy commissioner and i'll kind of have him do do his you know kind of do my do the bulk of the work or the work that i really don't have the energy to do to me, who knows what, what, what would have happened? I don't think we'd see the NBA um, that we see now, for sure. One of the interesting things about the book is, mm-hmm. so you have this story of the NBA as a business and how it evolves yeah. to, to, again, this global brand. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you have these incredible anecdotes that you've chased down about incredibly famous people. So just to share one, Okay. You have a great story about Magic Johnson in Dallas when Dallas is an expansion team. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, where's the local media? Let me do an yeah. interview. And then later on, he's told the game is, has sold out. And Magic's like, yes, that, that yeah. was the plan. Yep. So, you know, from a storytelling perspective, how do you balance the main story with these incredible anecdotes with these household names? That's a good question. Um, I think part of it, you know, it, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to start by answering that in sort of maybe a new agey way. And I think that might lead, lead me to a more credible answer. But I think, you know, you, you're a writer. If you, do this, if you do this enough, you have, it almost becomes innate how you can tell a story. There, there's, there's, you know, you, 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 you work incredibly hard or, uh, to, to, to research and interview. And eventually you find when you have to put things down on the page, you find that rhythm of where things fit and how it goes and how it flows. And it's, it's almost, it's kind of like when you're on a basketball court and you, you pull off a fancy move, like maybe like you put the ball behind your back and you pass it to a, to to an open teammate. You're not quite sure how you did it, but you, but all that you know is that that was the end result of hours and hours of, sh- of playing pickup games and shooting the basketball and trying things you know, in your driveway or in the, or in the elementary school uh, court. And it kind of leads to that. But, that's a, but, but, but that leads me now to the more credible part of it is that my goal, my goal when, I wrote, when I wrote this book is I wanted this to be an entertaining read. I wanted this to be a, a book where someone could pick it up read it and be entertained. Look, I'm asking you to, to have someone read a book is, is a tremendous, you're asking, that's a tremendous ask. You're asking someone to give up their time. You're asking someone to give up their money in most cases. If you bought the book, thank you. Um, to, and you're asking them to, to go on this journey with you that could take, you know, could take several hours, could take weeks. So you owe it to that person that's reading that book, whether it's on a Kindle or or, or through audio, you owe that person, you, you owe them more than just like, here's a book. You want, I want them to be entertained. So I was always very cognizant of, cognizant of, okay, 
I want to show, there's a point here I want to, there's a point I want to make, but I also want to provide something that's color, colorful or if, whether it's an anecdote or a turn of phrase or a great quote that, that's going to make them stick around and get to the next point. And if I can do that, then, I, then, I'm, then I'm in good shape because there is nothing more dry than just like a, reading a book like, oh, well, this book about the, about the war or this or that. And then it reads like a textbook where it's just facts and figures and okay, well then General Cornwallis did this. When you're, when you're, when you're, when you, I think when you're, when you're a writer, if you're a writer of any worth, you want, you want to have that combination of information and entertainment and you don't, you want to just keep them, you want to keep them aligned because if you go too far in one direction, it just, it, you know, the, the, you're shortchanging the reader. So I was very cognizant of trying to keep, of trying to keep those levels, um, le those levels balanced. And I think I did a pretty good job, but it, but it's hard because you, because I wanted to have, you have all this information. You know, I did 350 interviews for this book, book and there's so much stuff and there's so much I've read and there's just transcripts and pages and pages and you want to get it all in, but you can't, you have to pick and choose and discriminate. And when you pick and choose and discriminate, you want, you want to put, make, put that information in the most palatable, enjoyable way. And if you, I think if you read enough books from, from, from people who write nonfiction, who do it well, you'll, you'll see that. Even something like I just started reading um, the Robert Caro series on Lyndon B. Johnson, Path to Power. The book is a thousand, like it's like 900 pages, but it's so readable because Caro just, treats it like it's entertainment he treats it like it's a novel like look here's this whole thing about about hill country where like about how it's so hard to get the the, the well watered out and how painful it is to 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 you know to do iron to iron the laundry but those details those little nuggets those little those little those little specks i think are what or what bring a story across you you have to you know, think of when you tell a story, you're, you're trying to, you're telling a story that's going to get people interested. Or when you tell a joke, you, you want to put it in a way that that's interesting and entertaining. And, and, and books are the same way. You, you can't, you can't, you don't want people to fall asleep on you. Yeah. Carol is the best, the master. And I, I've, after I read the LBJ series and he wrote another great book called The Power Broker. Yeah. Uh, Moses, deep, yeah. Yeah, a deep dive into Caro and his process. Um, so I don't know how much you read about him, but for that first book, for the Path to Power, he and his wife moved yeah. to Texas Hill Country yeah, for like moved. a year and a half. They moved. But but what's so great about it? What you're alluding to is, you know, it's all vegetables, right? It's all just yeah, exactly like stuff that's not inherently interesting. Mm -hmm. But what he does is he also focuses as much on the craft of writing mm -hmm. to make this story that could be incredibly dry and boring, incredibly interesting. I always tell people it's like Lord of the Rings. It's like a nonfiction version of Lord of the Rings. Like That's it's a great, great way to look at it. Epic story. It's a great way to so look at it. So well told. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that, I mean, that's, that's what you look, I mean, that you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you are, you know, you're, you're trying, you're, you're absolutely trying to, you're, you're trying to dress this stuff up. And you can't just slap information on a page and call it and call it a narrative. You, you know, you you can't you can't 
you can't just put in quotes, a big chunk of quotes and call that reporting. You have to mix it up. You know, you, you, you have, to, I think, you know, it's, it's all about, again, you, you're trying to pace this. I try to pace any story in a way where it's exciting to read. And, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, and again, it's, and those details and the reporting bring that out. The more reporting that you have, the more liberties you can take with the story, the more creative you can be, the more, the, 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 the more freedom you have to, to try different things. And, you know, that's, that's, it all kind of, it ties in together. Right, and that research, sorry for, for listeners, there's some construction upstairs, so there might be a little bit of noise in the background. That research is so key because it allows you to so quickly set the scene. So er, early on in, in your book, you mentioned that O'Brien had just moved from Winston cigarettes. He was no longer smoking Winston cigarettes. Yeah. Right, yeah. just that detail makes it so it makes it for the reader so um puts puts the reader in that moment yeah thank uh, you and, and and back to the that idea of the, the new age idea so yeah. i'm working with a fantastic editor a guy named glenn stout who has written a bunch of books and is the series editor oh, for glenn. the best american sports right yeah it's fantastic yeah and he had a great line he told me something great the other day he said the story will tell you how it wants to be told yep and when you've done all that research and you've done all that work and you're immersed in it, there is that spooky process, that Norman Mailer spooky process where the story is going to tell you how it wants to be told. Yeah, I, I compare it to, to coiling a garden hose. You know, the, the hose is going to, you, you don't battle the hose. The hose is going to tell you how it's going to be coiled and then you can put it up, um, you know, put, you know, then you can put it away. And that's what it's like, you know, you, you, you do this enough and you are, again, you're immersed in this, the story, Glenn's right, the story will emerge. And those details I think are so important because those, you know, it's, and it comes back to something that, um, oh man, this, I'm going back a ways, but years ago, I interviewed um, Gamble and Huff, the sound of Philadelphia uh, songwriters and producers. One thing that Leon Huff said that's, that stuck out to me in this, that stuck, that has stuck with me to this day is he was talking about, you know, putting together an album and different sounds. And he said, and, and, I, and he was saying, you know, that ding could make a difference. So like the, the, the ding of a bell in a song could be the difference between a, a good song and a great song. And that has stuck with me. And it's the same thing with writing it's, it's, or anything else. It, it, those, those little details, if you can find them, and if you can work them into into the narrative seamlessly, it makes all the difference. It, it also shows that you care. You know, I think that's the thing. There's nothing worse than reading a writer who just phones it in. It, it, it is it is just it is just so disheartening because you know because it, it, you just you you feel like you've been cheated. And I I don't I didn't want to cheat any writer. I mean, look they. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to cheat any reader. I mean, a reader may not like the book. They may not. They may. They may. They may think it's okay. But I didn't want them to feel cheated. Like oh, this guy didn't really, didn't go the extra mile here. I, I wanted more on this, and I, I just I didn't want I didn't want a reader to feel that way. It would it would have um, it, it would have because if I had been on the because I've been on the receiving end of that, and it just it just stinks. It just stinks. Hundred percent, and it, it clearly shows in 
the, the amount of work that you've done, the amount of research and the amount of time you've spent on the craft clearly shows. So the book is from prime time to hang time. Can't recommend it strongly enough. Yeah. And Pete, thank you so much for taking the time. Please tell people where they can find you. My pleasure, Ben. Um, yeah, you can find me um, I'm on Twitter a lot. So probably that's the best way to find me uh, at Pete Croato. That's P-E-T-E-C-R-O-A, two T's as in Thomas O, at Pete Croato. Um, and I'm also on other social media um, platforms, Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not really on them very often. But Twitter is, is sort of where, uh, that's sort of uh, my water cooler. So I'm on there quite a bit. And if you want to buy the book, as you said, it's available at pretty much any brick and mortar and online bookseller. Though, please, if you can buy from your indie bookseller, please do. Speaking of that, if you go to if um, if you go to Odyssey Bookstore, they are selling autographed copies. So if you go to odysseybookstore.com, it's O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y bookstore.com, you can uh, you can find uh, the contact information to reach out to the store, and for an extra five dollars, they'll mail you an autographed copy of the book. Also, I'm happy to send out signed book plates. So if you uh, read the book in hardcover and you enjoyed it and you want a signed book plate, I'm more than happy to send uh, one to you free of charge. So yeah, it's, uh, that should cover the bases. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a covert figure. I, I, don't, uh, I don't shy away from the public, as small as it might be. So I'm around if anyone, if anyone wants to talk to me for sure. That was my conversation with Pete Corrado. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.